step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speechwriter and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca that's info at hatradio.ca hello and welcome back to hat radio my name is avram rosenzweig and this is episode 30. 30. oh yeah 30 a very wow. dramatic number i uh i want to start by saying that i'm deeply honored and delighted that uh, my guest this evening is erwin elman now if you haven't heard of erwin i think he's most popular uh, for being the former Ontario Provincial Advocate for Children and Youth. In lay terms, it kind of means that he was legally responsible for the children in Ontario. Right, right, Earl? Would that be accurate? In a, in a kind of way, we can get into that. So, sure. so ju just give us a definition of what that, what that job was. Who, well, I, who were you in that position? I was the one person in the province who had a piece of legislation that told them to partner with children and youth in the province and make sure that their concerns were heard and their voice was heard. And and you did that for 10 years, mm -hmm. right? That position came to an end. Your tenure was 10 years. Right. My, my legislation, my guiding legislation had said that um, I could, uh, the advocate, I mean, I was the first person to be uh, appointed by the legislature as advocate could have two five-year terms. The first, after the first five years, the legislature could reappoint the person if they wanted. And after 10 years, you were done. And so my 10 years complicated, which I'm sure you'll ask me about, but my 10 years came to the end in November of 2018. And um, I stayed six months longer than I was supposed to. Yeah. And we can get into why that happened. But yeah, I mean, I suffice did. it to say that when the Ford government came in, mm -hmm. one of the first things they did was they closed your office. Yeah, right? it's a story for sure in itself. Um, they closed my office. And at that time, when they closed my office, I had been, I'd already written them twice to say, uh, I'm, I'm tired. Yeah. Uh, you need to replace me. Yes. I, I don't really want to stay, so please replace me. Um, they never did. They never talked to the legislature. I talked to the legislature about what's going on. So around uh, the end of October, I, I got a call from one of my staff who 
heard on the CBC that yeah. our office was closed. They introduced legislation that would repeal our act, and I uh, had no idea that was going to happen. From there, what happened um, in terms of my position, uh, they were going to close our office, but they said they were going to um, not do that until May 1st. Right. And my act gave them permission as as leading the legislature, the government permission to appoint an interim advocate if the position was vacant. And the only way the position could become vacant was if, even though my term was up, I resigned. Yes. Because I was the advocate my, by my legislation unless there was a permanent replacement. There was not going to be a permanent replacement. So I told them, uh, I went to a committee of the legislature and said, I'm not leaving. Uh, go ahead, fire me if you want, but I'm I'm not leaving. And that I'm takes staying, balls. I'm staying to look after my staff and yeah. try and help um, the children of the province have the rights that they need in whatever transition you're making. I don't even understand it at this at that point. Um, and I'm going to fight for our office. I'll continue to do that. And. Uh, the, at that committee, it was all party committee. The the conservative member of the committee um, asked me, "So, are you serious? You're going you're going to stay, and you're not going to try and block us from doing what we're doing?" And I said, "No, I'll continue to fight for office, but uh, you're the government. I, I'm not the government. Yes, but I'm going to try and influence that." Um, as much as possible, rights of children stay intact in this province, and I'm going to look after my staff as best I can. And um, I had mentioned to her that if it ever came out that I was staying because I was somehow supportive of this idea mm-hmm. that they had, mm-hmm. there would be hell to pay. And I turned to the the NDP person on the committee, which is the opposition member on the committee and said, uh, I will ask you to hold that government um, to account in the legislature if you ever hear anything like that. What did he or she say? He will. He promised he would do that. It never happened. The other, it never happened where they said I was in agreement with what they were doing. I, was, I decided to stay, as I said, because I felt obligated. I, I worried that if I left, the government I would give the government free reign to yes. put in whoever the hell they wanted, and I don't know what they would have done. Tell me, are you not a fearful person? Yeah, of course, I'm. I was. I'm. I'm. A, I'm a very fearful person. Yeah, I, I have am anxiety too. too, right? Yeah, me so too. Me too. No, but, a, but I used you... to say I'm the. I was the, the child advocate who was, um, who hated conflict, right? Yeah. But, I just. That point, I was thinking about my staff and thinking about children, and I had spent those years, those years as the advocate, saying, "What would they want me to do?" And I'm not. I was not going to be the person who abandoned them. And what? What? That would be like goodbye to them. Say good luck with this. No, that wasn't going to happen. When I hear you say that about I'm staying to take care of my staff and the children. I hear Janusz Korczak. I know. <laughs> Maybe I, there's now, a part now, of that in there. Yeah, you're a know. huge student of Korczak. Uh, 
well, it's a low bar in Canada. It's like the tallest tree in Saskatchewan. But yeah, I know who he is. <laughs> I've read something. Not only that, you print it up. How many books of his and two. gave it out to your staff? It wasn't his books. Or someone wrote about being a courtship orphan. It was orphan. about, yes, two books by people who, who survived the Holocaust and, and were actually living in his orphanages in, in Warsaw. And, and uh, we, print, we published them in English. Um, and I, I, I did that. I gave them to my staff, but I wanted the public and the government to see because I thought what I had learned about Korshak, I thought, how can... Can we, you know, when I was told by government often, Erwin, what do you want us to do with that? When I would talk about my uh, my fluffy ideas, like I'd say, you know, can kids need a supportive adult? Kids need love. And we shouldn't be afraid to use that word. And that they all, basically, that's what they all say, kids in the group homes. And it, it, why can't we, if Korshak could do it in an orphanage with nothing, Right in the middle of a Warsaw ghetto, how can we not do that in an industrialized country like Canada and Ontario? And the government told you you can't legislate love. Love, right? And I was going, well, yeah. And I didn't think of the answer to that. Usually, I think of them later, or I those are the talk oh, to young shit people. Moments, yeah, right? but I yeah. say it now. Yeah. And I came back because a young person told me, yes, you can't legislate love, but you can legislate the conditions in which love can flourish. Excellent. And that's the truth. And so um, that's why I put I wanted to put those books out because I wanted people to understand that is possible. I wanted the the service providers and the government to say that is possible. It was done, and so now we can do it ourselves. It's just a matter of figuring out how. Um, that's why those books were important. Why Korshak's important? Yeah. So let's How backtrack for a, a second. Not, not have them be important if you, when I find out about them, which I, you know. Yeah. So let's backtrack for a second. Korczak, or uh, Henry Goldschmidt was his name. He was a mm-hmm. Polish Jewish educator, children's author, and pedagogue known as Pan Doktor, right? Mm-hmm. After spending many years working as director of an orphanage in Warsaw, he refused sanctuary repeatedly and stayed with his orphans when the entire population of the institution was sent by the Nazis from the ghetto to Treblinka extermination camp in 1942. So h- how did you find out about Korczak? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I went through uh, teacher's college, political science degree. I did master's in education, never heard of him. And it wasn't until right, before right. I was the advocate, I went with a group of young people in children's aid care to Japan. And we stayed in some what they call children's homes in Japan. And uh, children's homes are bigger institutions and group homes, 60 to 100 kids in what we call care in Canada, lived there. And we, I, I stayed in one of the group homes. And one of the staff in, who spoke some English, you know, had said, oh, so, I don't know how it came up, but mentioned something about, oh, you're Jewish. Yes. So you must know Yanis Korshak. And I go, who? And the the staff, the Japanese staff, was like shocked. How could you not <laughs> yeah. know yeah. who that is? More because you're a Jew than yeah. I'm a, a practitioner, child and youth worker yes. at the time. Or it's a reasonable managers. question. Right. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, how could I not know? But And I thought a lot about that, racism and stuff, but it's not taught. So I 
decided to um, read. And then my wife went, see, I'm telling these long stories. My wife went to Washington <laughs> with her sister to watch her sister run in a, a marathon. And my wife went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington. And she came home with um, the biography of uh, Yanis Korshek. And that's really where I started. My wife brought me the book and I read it. And then I started reading more. And then I realized it, there was much more to him than the story you told, which is obviously it's heroic, right? Um, and important uh, around him uh, refusing to leave his children. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's important for Jews to know that story. But I also know his teachings and learning uh, that he gave his young people in his practice was was I didn't realize, and I don't think Canadians realize that we talk about children's rights or the UN Convention on the Rights of Child. In Europe, he's considered uh, the father of children's rights. Yeah, isn't that something? Who would know? Here. Isn't that something? Yeah. Well, Korczak was a really interesting fellow. I'm going to ask you if you can take your elbows off the table. Sure. Because the, the microphone. Yeah, my mom used to ask me that. No, flashback. <laughs> Trauma. <laughs> no, don't worry. I'm not going to hit you with a yeah. ruler. Um it's, yeah, it's very interesting. Also, when I found out about Korchak, my dear friend Ellie Rubenstein is a spiritual yeah. letter. You know Ellie at, at Hubble. Heard of him. Yeah. And he's, and he's the director of March of the Living. So he, he always says stuff like this. He goes, well, Avram, you know who Janusz Korchak is, don't you? <laughs> yeah, don't you? <laughs> Do you have friends like that? Yeah. I go, no, Ellie, I actually don't. And also, I was befuddled when I determined that I had known this man because he was so far ahead of his time. Or he was within his time, and we hadn't recognized what came before him. Because as an example, he started a paper for the kids. They, they were the ones yeah. who, who managed it, right? He, yeah. had a, he had a government in his orphanage, for all intents and purposes. Yeah. A radio show. I mean, this man was and incredible. You know what's weird? I'll tell you. I haven't talked this way, or and it sounds... Because I don't like the way it sounds, but I'm going to tell you. When I was at the Paper Adolescent Resource Center, before I was the advocate... Yes. Um, I didn't know what kids in care, I didn't know who they were. I didn't know what child welfare was. I w couldn't find a teaching job and got hired to help support and set up the center. And the first thing I did, uh, because I'd read a lot of uh, Freire and uh, doing my master's in teacher's college, uh, we set up a newsletter. It was a paper for the voice of children in care of the center. And that became the foundational piece of the organization that really flourished and grew. Yes. And then I learned about Korshak having a newspaper and going, what the? <laughs> How did I come to that without reading him, right? And, and so there was something in his practice that I think either has influenced or is part of just being human because Jean Vanier talks about it, Friere talks about it, and he was actually practicing it rather than writing about it only in in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds to to the nineteen early nineteen forties. Well what is it about certain people that encourage them to really authentically go outside of the box and do something which is so dramatically different and many people will say you know what man that's just stupid like when i started via hafta i left uh, a sixty thousand dollar job at the united jewish appeal and that was in 19 
96. So that, that was okay money, you know. I, 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 I never graduated from university, so I was doing fine, you know. And people say, don't do that. Don't do that. I said, no, I'm going to start a Jewish humanitarian organization because th there's not one in Canada. And with all this never again stuff, I think there should be. Yeah. So I was deeply proud of myself for doing that. But I want to ask you, why do some people say, yeah, you know what? I believe in the voice of children. And I believe that we should be starting a newspaper that they run and that they should have their own government in this orphanage. They should run their own environment. And other people will just look at it and say, it's ridiculous. Who are those people who are prepared to do that? I, yeah, I don't know. Um, well, you did wasn't, that. You did that. I know. And it wasn't until later and, and thinking about, so the other concept I didn't know I was Jewish was, uh, I'm not even going to say it right, Tikkun, right? Say heal the world. Yes, Tikkun Olam, repairing yeah. the world. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't know about that. Yeah. And my mom and and dad, they didn't, we weren't religious. They didn't talk about it. Yeah. But I think when I look back, I think some of the stuff my mom said, she probably didn't know herself. She was practicing some of the teachings. and Like uh, what? Do you remember? Yeah. Um I remember things like you, Irwin. You don't hate anybody. Yeah. You're not allowed to hate anybody. Yes. You can dislike people. She even go. You can intensely dislike, but this hate isn't something you're permitted to do. Um, and do your best. Always do your best. She was big on on uh, not judging the outcome necessarily, but judging did you do your best because you have to live with yourself and some variation of being responsible for others. Right. Um, and and she wasn't a political activist. She wasn't political at all. But I feel like, oh, that's where some of her, her stuff that came to me came from. And uh, I feel like some of that is there. What was her name here, Mel? My mom's still alive. Her how, name's Betty. How old is she? Uh, 96. She's 96. Where, yeah. where does she, she live? She lives in BC on Vancouver Island. My brother lives there. Do you go out and see her? Oh Yeah. Every summer we were there and I go out by myself. You know, I'll go back in September. Are you close with your mom? Yeah, I think so. We are. She, uh, <laughs> she's 96. Yeah. So she's, she's, um, she's in, uh, she, she moved. She used to live in Ottawa, and she, my sister lived there. And my, my, it's a sad story too. My sister died. I'm sorry. Yeah, thanks. And and my mom decided because my brother had moved out long, long time ago when I was a teenager. He's an older brother to BC and Vancouver Island. And my mom, in her 80s, said, uh, "I'm gonna move out to BC and <laughs> change my life." And she's feisty. She, yeah, and she got a condo and stayed there. And she was independent till about ninety two. Yeah, and then she went. She's in a nursing home, and so she's had her moments where she's, you know, you go and visit her, and she's saying, "Oh, I might not see you again," which yes. is, and she's very uh, stoic about it, and not sad, not depressed, just saying, "Yeah, I, I'm ready, but I don't, I don't want to die, but I'm, it's okay," and uh, so, yeah, I think she's told me 
many times. Do you have any more questions for me? Is there so anything you says? want to know? Oh, yeah. Do you come up with questions? I try because... Like what? Give me an example. Uh, usually they're family questions like who was Uncle Izzy or something. Or I heard this about Uncle Izzy. And now she's 96. She tells a different story each time. So I have to go back to my brother and say, what's the truth now? So you don't have to say to your mother, Mom, I feel great love for you. Can you tell me about your love for me? Like, you, you know she loves you. Yeah, well, we tell each other. You I tell each other. Each Did time. you always tell each other? No. You? no. When, when did that start? Yeah, that's a good question. I would, I would say that it started probably at some point with in uh, when I worked at, at this PayPal Resource Center with Kids in Care, which is when people ask me about, about they say they use the words helping kids, right? And anything I've done for young people, um, they've done a hundred times more for me. I think you know what I, yes, I'm I talking about. Yes. And when I moved to, so I lived in, oh, I hope your listeners think this is interesting, but I was born in Montreal. And my family moved when I was little, I think like two years old or something. I have an older brother, six, and I had a, a sister who was one year younger, and she, she died when she was 50. So we're, I was living in Montreal with my family, Montreal Jews, and my dad, for whatever reason, um, was sort of the unwelcome guest in his family. And my dad had married up in terms of class, so my mm -hmm. mom was wealthy but her dad um, lost his business so my parents and our family was kind of not getting along in the family the jewish family circle do you remember that no i was so lit well i do because we we moved to ottawa yes. and and we uh we didn't see any yeah um extended family right we didn't have any extended family. We we'd go on holidays to talk, go see my dad's mom because my my mom's parents were dead. So my the only uh, grandparent I had was my bubby, right? Yeah. My dad's mom. Yes. And she was like a queen, who uh, <laughs> I can. She smoked a lot. How's it going, around? I don't know if you know that smoker's voice. I, that, I, my aunt had oh, that. I do know that. I do know that. And it was somewhat auspicious when we were growing she up. Was, now you listen. Frightened of her. Right, right now you listen. You go, oh shit, man, you smoke too much, dude. Right, you know, right. Right. we were very frightened of her. But we wouldn't go very often, and so that was it. And and then, um, so I grew up there, and then I went to university at Carleton, did a political science degree and tried to save the world after that in a public uh, Ontario public interest research group program then moved to Toronto and when I was in Toronto I moved to Toronto to go to teachers college right and I was alone because I I was alone because I didn't have my immediate family and I had no extended family so there's really no family are you friendly like when you, I'm shy. When you land in the middle of a jungle, will you make friends with no. the gorillas? No, no. Right. Do you have a lot of friends or many friends or no. some friends? No. Yeah. I have one close friend I met in university. Great guy? Great guy. Yeah. Key. And is that enough? Is it enough to have one friend? I would say, I was going to tell you, now it is. 
because I I have an immediate family yes. again, right? Yes. Um. But when I when I moved to Toronto, it wasn't enough because I found that in reflecting when I got this job at this center, I was working with and making a community. That was my idea: is to create a community of young people who were leaving the child welfare system who also had nobody. They were removed from their families. They're getting ready at you know, 16, 17, 18 to live on their own, and they leave the child welfare system. Boom, they're gone, right, off the edge of a cliff. So I created this center, and but unintentionally, they were filling my need by right, right. Um, letting me be part of the community I was creating. Yes, it's and interesting that being, way. Yes. You know, they, we often said, sometimes they would say, oh, Erwin, don't think you're my dad. You're not my dad. You're you're like my my crazy uncle, because <laughs> right. I was known for being a little off the wall. You're is, you're you're evuncular. Yes, <laughs> and others said, "Well, we don't like the word family because that's a loaded term for us. So we're a community." Isn't but, that interesting? Wow. But it wasn't until later on that I realized that they filled the need of belonging for me. And I remember John Vanier later on writing, "We think our greatest need is." to be loved but actually our greatest need is to belong and so that was what i needed at that point and uh yeah there's lessons like that along the way that young people have taught me and so so that's yeah i don't know how i got to there on in this interview but that idea and that point of belonging was really important and uh, it's, it's it's interesting where it came from yeah it's really interesting erwin because all my life, I've had this passion for homeless people, and I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. And I've looked back at the various different chapters of my own life, and one of them was when I came to Toronto when I was 13 years old. My parents lived in Kitchener, and they would ship one of us off to Toronto every single year to go to a private Jewish school. I went to what was called a yeshiva, oh. or a Talmud, a Talmud school. Uh-huh. And I remember... It was about five o'clock one afternoon walking from the yeshiva to a Jewish school nearby where I took English secular studies. Right. And I was at Finch and Bathurst. And I remember thinking to myself at 13 years old, nobody knows where I am right now. No, no one knows where I am right now. And it, it was that feeling of loneliness, which you talked about before. And as my life moved forward, I realized that there's a certain wall that I built around myself because of how I was raised. And I was terrified of people and things going wrong. There was a lot of noise in my head, you know? And I started to realize, I honestly, I didn't feel as though I was entrenched in a home. Even though my parents were together, and I have four sisters, thank God, whom I love dearly, I always felt as though I was a little bit homeless myself, at least in my soul. And that's ultimately what drove me to start Via Hafta, I believe, and for our very first program or second program was to be with the homeless. So it's very interesting. What you're saying is that your own loneliness brought you to working with children who they themselves were lonely. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I think, yeah, I don't know if it brought me there, but it was a tool. It was a tool. Yeah. Yeah, Because I, I, I wonder if I had gone to a, if I got hired at that point in my life by an animal shelter, would I be interested in uh, the rights of animal rights and be? I'd run a 
humane society or something. I don't know. And I'm not comparing children to animals at all. No, I get it. I get it. I just just don't know how that – I mean, I knew I went to teacher's college because at the time I had – as growing up, I had – Worked in a, in a grocery store forever, and then changed jobs in high sc- at the end of high school because I worried I'd end up working in grocery store the rest of my life. Not that just wasn't what I wanted to do. That wasn't for you. And so I thought, oh, I'm pretty good with kids. So I worked in day camps in and did it through university. Did that kind of work. So at the time when I graduated university, I thought, okay, I'm not going to change the world around environmental issues and where I worked um, I was teaching about back then we talked about acid rain and so I was yeah, teaching about rain, yeah. I remember acid rain so I'd go do presentation about acid <laughs> right. rain to I remember a seniors group in in outside outskirts of Ottawa and I'd do a presentation and then the, this elderly lady said to me son that is I was like a big fake hippie back then it wasn't in the hippie times i just <laughs> want to be and she's son do you really think writing the member uh, our member of parliament is going to do anything to ends acid rain yes and i go uh, yeah okay i didn't i don't remember what i said to her but i remember coming back and saying yeah okay i'm done <laughs> trying to change the world now i'm going to try and change the world by helping people yes and on a smaller scale. Sometimes one-on-one. Yeah. 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 And uh, so then I said, how am I going to do that? And I thought, I, am, I'm, I was good with kids, so I'll go to teacher's college. And That's that worked out it, for you? It did. Yeah. Were you a good student? Uh, in teacher's college, I loved it because you got teacher's colleges like going back to high school. Yeah. back to That's how it felt like. But beyond that, no, I'm a, I was not a good student. Well, well, was, why was that? I, I Again, I've, I've watched your stuff. And I, I don't want to embarrass you, but no, I, I, I listen to you, and I honestly think you're brilliant. I really do. <laughs> no, Erwin, I do. I do. You're articulate. You know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. You've worked through a lot of your oratorical abilities and brought bring them to people in such a way, which I know, because I've done this, it's very sophisticated. Like, And then dealing with legislation and dealing with legislators, I couldn't do that, man. Like, you're, you're a bright, capable human being. I have some skill. Like, I'm, I'm good at big picture thinking i'm good at the vision stuff yeah i'm i have i can critically analyze things i think i like that i didn't call it that but i know what that is but detail yeah what do you suck at oh (laughs) what are you terrible at i don't manage the money in my house that's for sure (laughs) yeah um your wife uh, does anything that has detail like the you know the legislation yeah so the key to doing anything is well, not one of the keys to doing anything for me was always understanding their what what you don't know. Like, I don't, I don't, not even do I not want to know the details of legislation. I couldn't do it, so I need to have people around me who love that, yes. who are great at that, right. and they tell me what I need to know. And even with young people, right? That's the key for me. It was working with young people. Is I, I admit it. I, I don't know anything about their life. Right. So one thing I was was curious. So curiosity and admitting to yourself that you didn't know things, that was cool. That was good, helpful to me because then I would not try and do something for somebody. 
I didn't know what they wanted or needed, so I'd have to ask them. Um, right. And the is, other thing we yes. talked about before was that asking people questions was a good way of them not asking you. Yeah, it's deflecting the, away. The problem with young people is they, especially if you're going to see them over and over again and have uh, be in a community with them, they figure that out, right? Before you're even sometimes your family does, right? They figure you out and they call you on it. Right? Are, are you able at that point, are you able to get down and dirty? And in a, what I mean by that, are you able to find a place that's the equivalent, let's say, of the teenagers that you're working with on a native reserve? Like one of one of the thing that scares me a lot is teenagers who won't listen to me. That scares me. My son is 13 years right now, 13 years old. And I'm like terrified of him saying, no, daddy, I'm not going to do this. Right. Because I'm not always sure how I'm going to respond. I'm not a disciplinarian. I'm just not. Yeah. So my question to you is, do you find that place? Where the teenagers will say, okay, man, it's Irwin. It's Irwin. It's cool. We can talk. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Uh, wh where is that place? What does it look like? For me? For you and for them. For them, with me, it's like, <laughs> it's messy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, with young people, when you're there in that moment, well, you're in the moment. Yes. So you're feeling something. They know you, if you're angry, they know you're angry. Yeah. And you have to... For me, it was you have to trust that you have a relationship so that the if you're angry, it's not overpowering them because and they have the ability to give it right back. It's different, and I think I don't know how you felt, and I struggle with it because I have a 15 year old son, so it's different with my son. But in those cases, it was we we give it back and forth, and uh, and we come because my nature is conciliatory so we come to an understanding and my position was always it's not my life right it's not my journey it's theirs so with kids that aren't my son it's a little bit harder with my son but i have to remind myself okay that's what you're gonna do so so i've met young people and they're not young anymore so i have lots of people i met back from my days when I worked in the field, like who are in their 40s and 50s, we still talk. And and I remember as they were getting older, if I was on going down the street, Young Street in Toronto, and I would run into them and they were panhandling because yes. they would run. And they'd go, oh, fuck, excuse my language. Oh, crap, here comes Irwin, right? Because Irwin's going to give them hell. Not because I would always say to them, like, this is a choice. It's not. I get it. It's not a choice, but if you don't want to be doing this, come and see me. Do they ever? Of course they would. Yeah, unless they just wanted that was a choice. Because I was saying, I would say to them, like I get, I can't solve homelessness. That's I can't. But I believe in. I I believed in these young people and these people that I knew. I believed in them that. With the right support, right combination of, of resources and connection, that belonging idea, and a sense that they could get out of this, they could. It didn't matter actually what the government did. We could figure it out and find a way. Have you? And one at a time. Have you managed? That's possible. 
Have you managed to contain your judgment then over the years? A lot of times sure. somebody will look at a, a teenager with a mohawk haircut, and it's obviously the kid has been cutting themselves, and they swear, and they smoke, and they have yellow teeth, they'd be doing crack. And there's all kinds of judgments that go out having to do with that child. He's going to steal from you. He's a rotten kid. He's not very nice. Have you, have you managed to sort of displace that to get rid of that judgment? Do you yeah. look at the child for who they are? Yeah, they're, I think so. I yeah. feel like I do. They're people. I I feel like there's there's people I have a harder time with that still, because um, I feel I can't, there's some people who I feel I can't connect with still. Yes. And, and some I've learned in a job as an advocate. So one group would be people with severe disability. Like I, I had no idea how to connect with them. I also I've don't. Me too. I learned some. And then others are people who've seen. I remember, uh, and this is back, but I remember a, a young man who came to see me. And he was really tough and in gangs and and he he probably knew he could read me too because that's the thing about young people all people but young people they can read you so he scared me so he would take out a blade and he would i remember back i guess there were lifesavers and he would instead of just opening a lifesaver pack he would use the (laughs) knife in front of me to cut the lifesaver off (laughs) oh my god this is not gonna go well and so him i couldn't and I don't know if I was judging him, but I couldn't find a way to have myself break down the barrier. It wasn't him. Um, it, so it was me. And and I think um, in that sense, knowing my audience, right? Yes. I was not gonna. I was not gonna be able to do that with him. I didn't have that skill. And for whatever reason, I wasn't really interested in doing some self analysis about what's that about, right? Well, that's for very me. honest of you. It's very right. honest of you, knowing that. And there are people who are great at yes. working with them and not so great at, like I remember talking to some of my staff would say, Erwin, those kids who are uh, who are always complaining and whining and poor me, I can't, they can't take it. Give me somebody like that who seems tough and on the outside, and that's who I want. I can deal with them. And it's like, okay, I'm better. I'm it wasn't uh, somebody I was going to be able to be good at. But I don't think I was judgmental. It was more about me. So They, I always knew, are, were individuals or people. So, so before we move on, because I really want to talk about what your job entailed, you have some <sighs> wonderful stories to tell. Did you just sigh? Yeah. <laughs> You're a little tired, aren't you? <laughs> no, I, I, no, I, no. Okay, that wasn't a tired sigh. I was like, I can talk a lot. You know what I find interesting about you too, Erwin? And I ramble too. No, no. It's not the rambling. I like your rambling. You're, inter- you're an interesting rambler. Sounds like a country <laughs> song. But but what I like about you is in the middle of your, your speaking, you'll stop and you go, oh, man, I'm sounding boring. <laughs> or, or you'll stop and you go, yeah, I shouldn't be doing this right now. <laughs> your, your thoughts come out on every level. <laughs> uh, it's true. Have you no noticed fil- that? It's true about no filter, yes. You don't have a filter that I way. Deny it's dangerous. I saw you talking in front of hundreds and hundreds of colleagues, I think they were. It was some mm-hmm. conference, right? Mm-hmm. And you would stop and go, damn, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> it's true. I love that. Uh, in a, in a, it was uh, off for people I was working with when I was advocate, you know, yeah. like the bureau- bureaucrats or the politicians, it is off-putting, right? Because 
I think one of the deputy ministers said, and I I thought I was offended by, it, but he said that I was dangerous. Uh, why? Yeah, I thought that was a negative thing. Well, when why I told would you my be staff, dangerous? They thought that was a good thing. I oh, I, I feel, see. I feel he thought I was dangerous because I see. Yeah. He, he, what is this? Like he's he's not. He's got no filter. It's um, he's not playing. They, nah, and the deputy I really liked, he wouldn't have said that to me unless he trusted me, which <laughs> right. is the irony of that. It worked in counseling, too. When I would tell young people, they, oh, they're going to keep this. They're not going to talk about their secret. And I go, oh, you will. I can bet you right now Yes. Um, you'll be sitting here and, and you're going to tell me. But that's okay. I don't want to know. Don't want to know now. And then when they – I remember <laughs> – <laughs> Such an asshole. When I when they would do it, I remember this this kid who was gonna tell me, and I and you you asked me about relationships, so I had a relationship, and I knew enough I could stop it and say, "Wait a minute, it's I know it's two years, but do you remember?" It? And he said, "Shut the fuck up." And I said, "Yeah, I just want to say I told you so. So go ahead, tell me what you wanted to tell me now." And uh, oh dear, try to keep your elbows off the table. And <laughs> and I I think that um. Yeah, the the deputy ministers and bureaucrats didn't know what to make of me at the time, which was, in a in a sense, it was helpful. You because you threw them off balance. Correct. So, are you comfortable being yourself? And, yeah, you are. I, I think so. Yeah. I don't know how to, another way to be. Yeah. So be yourself because the alternative is not not so great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I, I just no, no. That's don't know the same. Like, you, you, I never if, learned if, how to do anything. It was say it again. Be yourself. So it's something like that. Like be yourself because the alternative is not necessarily so great. Who else are you going to be? You know. Yeah. Right. So that that's a fine skill that you have, by the way, the ability to be yourself. Because I often think as though I'm full of shit. Like I, I, I sometimes feel as though I'm not being authentic. You know, it's that syndrome, right? Yeah, but then you feel like being yourself. I feel like. And so I'm thinking your listeners, even now, I'm thinking, they're going to think this guy's not a smart guy. Like, because that's not, being yourself is not how bureaucrats, right. academics, right. they are being themselves, but they're talking about, I haven't mentioned a statistic yet in all we're talking about. All I've done is tell stories, and I don't know, those stories are important to me. I don't know if they mean anything to to you or whoever's going to listen to this, so so there's a, a different side uh, of of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just figured that when you're standing in front of bureaucrats or when you're standing in front of politicians and you're using the terms love and you're talking about how we need to love these children mm-hmm. because they have souls and they have spirits and they're beautiful kids if only given the opportunity and then you probably go off on a diatribe about some of these kids and you talk in very holistic, organic terms. I'm going to guess some of them are sitting there not knowing what you're talking about, and other ones are kind of allowing that wall that they have to go down and to take in that love that you're sharing with them. True. And there were some deputies and some ministers that... uh, So I I remember um, the first minister I had to deal with was Deb Matthews. Yes. Minister Matthews, liberal government. And... She ha- had a big heart, but what moved her was data. Give me facts. <laughs> Numbers. So I I drive her crazy, right? Uh, I'm sure if you interviewed her, she thinks she thought I would did a good job, but she would say, oh, my God. Um, and then there's others 
who are moved not by facts but by their heart, their yes. emotion. And I'm not sure the the key I feel like is to connect head and heart, right? Not one versus the other, but both. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say Minister Matthews came closest to doing that. I would say the minister that I last had to work with with the Tories, uh, Lisa McLeod. I don't often say her name anymore. I'm just so angry with her. I think she, you're going to think this is weird, but I think she used her heart and not her head. Um, well, she wasn't nice to you in the end. She, no, she wasn't, but she, she was. She used emotion. And uh, so I don't, that, that, that was my sense of her. That's not always good, right? Yeah, like when you work with somebody and they're constantly giving you accolades for your work, and then they turn around, and I guess she did what she had to do, um, and then sort of reverse her opinion of you and your work <laughs> on one foot in a moment. That's just not kind. It's just not right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in, how badly were you hurt? How, like uh, emotionally? Per, emotionally, so let me say this. I let me say this ab- about. I think how you do things is as important as what you do. Yeah. I think that's true in 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 any of the policies or programs, not how you create them only, but I mean thinking about what services you're offering at Bahapta or Children's Aid Society or any children's mental health center, how you're going to offer those services is important as what service you're going to offer. Yes. Um how you're working individually with kids, how you're doing advocacy is important as just writing the report. How you come up with that report. How you treat people is as important as what you do. So you're going to, I don't know, you're going to break up with somebody and you're, you're a couple and you're going to break up. How you break up with somebody is as important as the breakup. Yes. It's not that you don't have the right to do a breakup. And that... I felt like was uh, difficult with this minister um, and this government. I don't think it's just this minister, but this minister for sure. How she did this was just wrong, mm-hmm. regardless of what I think of the decision itself. But mm-hmm. no, you, you, as you say, you don't praise, 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 and then change your mind without a word. You don't make such a important decision in people's lives, including children or my staff or me, um, and let people find out about it on the news hours before it was going to be tabled in the legislature. No, you don't refuse. I mean, the other thing that bugs me about this minister, I asked to speak with her. I've not spoken with her since that announcement was made. I asked. I wanted it. I wanted a reason. Like, Would you still the, speak with her? I don't know. But uh, before, when I, you know, I tried again. The bill passed, and so the, the fight was over. I was still the advocate because I had stayed. I would stay and do a piece of helping the ombudsman take the crumbs that they gave him, and and making sure my staff who weren't gonna have a job were taken care of. So I stayed, and but the bill had passed. So I was I had I phoned her chief of staff, and it said, you know, I want to talk. I'd like to meet the minister. It's over, right? So I don't want to argue yeah. if that's what she's worried about. 
You're not coming I in just, there with guns loaded. I won't right? even talk. I just want her to tell me why. What? What's the rationale? Yes. Like, why are you doing this? And the chief of staff said, "Not a good time." And so that was the last time I tried. And now, would I talk to her? If she wanted to talk to her. I. I don't know. I've done. I used to tell young people when they were estranged from people that really did them wrong, and they were weren't sure about whether they should talk to them or not. It's a question you asked me, and I'd say, "Do your half," because they would say, "Well, I don't know what my mother, or my social worker is going to say." And say, "Well, you can't control what other people say, but you can do your half." I feel like I've done my half, and she gave me her answer. Yes. And and I, I, I don't have to live with that. Uh, I did my half, right? She's the one who has to live with her answer. She's carrying. Uh, I'm not carrying a load. She's carrying a load. She can't help but carry a load. And and uh, it doesn't matter to me what other extra baggage she's got, because you know she's. It's it's that I'm one of tons of decisions that she personally as a minister has made and then with the autism file or or other service providers or then she changes to be a different minister and i don't know if you you probably know she went and talked uh publicly uh, called a um i don't want to swear again but called a member of the public at a concert yeah yeah that an effing piece of yeah yeah and She's got a lot of stuff she's carrying. Actually, doesn't matter. Uh, it's not an excuse to me, um, but she's got to carry it. So you, you you can let go of stuff then. Yeah, I'll let go of that. I'm still angry. Yeah. Um. Not, but not. I. Uh, it's. I've tried to figure. So, I'm angry. It, I know it's not about her. It's not about Doug Ford. It's it's certainly about what they've done. But it's 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 about lot bigger issues and it's about about their government but it's not personal I'm not making it personal and it's been hard to not take it personally because yes. you asked me did it hurt well people had asked me about oh so people feel like Erwin it's what she did to you and <laughs> I'm here talking to you I'm laughing I get to talk about yeah. all sorts of things I'm retired uh, she did nothing to me Right, nothing was done to me, um, and did she, she didn't fire me? People talk about I was fired. Well, I wasn't fired. No, it was, was the end of your tenure. Right, yeah. but people don't get that, so I didn't feel fired. Um, and then they talk about your legacy, and I remember thinking that my legacy is not in anything any report it's not in that my legacy is in the young people who or adults or anybody who's been part of anything i've done that remembers it yes that'll live past me right when they i tell my staff you know when you think about all that that one of my staff once said We'd follow you anywhere if only to see where the hell you're trying to take us, right? <laughs> That's a great uh, line. Some morbid curiosity to That's see where you're line. going. But you'll remember, all oh, that kooky leader who did this or that or yeah. did this um, project or and supported us to that. That's my legacy. 
that sh- they can't kill that. And I that, agree with you. I agree. With and you that's 100%. the young people. And I wanted young people who work so hard in our office and tried to change things to understand that any decision about our office doesn't kill that legacy. Um, is legacy, so not, is legacy important to you? No, well, not it is in that sense that I'm remembered as a good person who tried his hardest. What I was telling you, my mom taught me who did his part to try and did his part, not change the world. Yeah. Did his part, took up his role in trying to, to change the world. Yeah, that's important. All the other stuff, no, I don't feel it. But I feel a sense of guilt. I do about about what happened because I'm there. Like if, you know, the buck stops with me, how did I not see that coming? Like, what could I have done? And people ask me that. What for others, right? Because there's other advocates in other provinces mm-hmm. who also worry. Mm-hmm. Could this happen? There's other advocates in other parts of the world. You know, I, you probably know it's been written about that. In Japan, they're building a ch- their first child advocacy system on the model we created in Ontario. Yes, so I read I'm, that, yes. So I'm going back again. I just heard to to help help isn't the right word they've invited me back to be with them in uh in uh december to spend time with them to help them figure out what to do are you gonna go yeah of course yeah but i feel guilty because did i leave let them down and they will ask me how how could we make sure that doesn't happen to us and do you have an answer for that not really because i don't understand what happened and uh, and why and, you know, I'm thinking about what could we have done differently? And and my struggle is anything I could have th- thought about doing differently would have compromised what we did, if you know what I mean. Could we have been, was I outspoken enough? Some people think I was, some people think we weren't. But could I have played the game more yes. so that I was more in in bed with the powers that be so that I was safer. Is there a way of making it safer? Maybe, but then I don't think we could have done what we did. Um, and we wouldn't have been able to take the risks that we did. I just didn't, I thought I would be replaced. Well, I knew I was going to be replaced and my staff was saying, Oh, it's, it's going to be so different. You're not here. Even the last time I talked to the minister back in October, she had said, how are we going to replace you? It's impossible. Yeah, that's we'll, tough. That's we'll really have tough. To have, we, are there, I said, there's going to be lots of candidates. And she said, well, there, there's not going to be another you. And I was say to her and my staff, it would after 10 years in an organization, it would be stupid to hire another me. Yeah, you were tired, right? Yeah, like hiring another. You got me. Yeah. You got all I can give. So just build on that and decide where the organization is going to go. And you'll you'll get better. It'll just move forward and get better. If you hire somebody who's exactly like me, that makes no sense, right? But I will help you. Um, and that's what I thought was going to happen. Uh, and the fact that there's nothing, right? And that kids got hurt. And I worry about the kids who still don't have somewhere to call. And, and I worry about all the other things the government is doing. and Did they call your office, those kids? 
which kids? These kids whom you speak of who have no place to call. Yeah, of be, course be, they did. That was our job. We had a 1-800 number. How many, how many people would man that phone and how often? Uh, well, we had a person who was taking calls every day and they would switch. So they would have what quote, quote, cases. Um, and young people would uh, call from group homes, from foster homes, from mental health centers, from a community. How many calls say, a day? Uh depends on the day but probably about a, a big year with 5,000 calls a year wow. and we were just the struggle I have with it, and why countries like Japan and Ukraine looked at us we were just on the cusp of really bringing together like this individual rights advocacy we called systemic work where and then we finally won the right to get investigations and put it all together and always have young people part of it and at the center. Investigation means you could check out a situation. We could actually compel people to give us information or testimony. And Can, then, who are those people you could compel, as an example? Um, uh, group home worker, okay. uh, social okay. worker. And before uh, that, you could not. For could the not. first eight years of your tenure? it was partner with children and youth to bring their issues forward. And then finally, you could investigate. Then okay. we could investigate, yeah. but it was a long fight. And it's that. groundbreaking. Yeah. In Ontario, it was never done, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Right. So um, so what did you hear from these kids when they called in? Did you ever take the phone? Yeah, well, take... yeah, because I did, because when I first became an advocate, I wanted to know what my staff were going to be doing and be faced with. So I said, let me answer the phones. And... <laughs> Yeah, they they hated when I got involved in cases. Of course they did. Because uh, the boss... Well, then there's a couple things wrong with that, right? One said... And I found that was a problem, but I could not say no to young people. or at, If people wanted to meet me, I would meet them. And so, yeah, well, then your poor advocate, who's your staff, they're they're like the cheap meal and when why go to them when they can go to a big advocate but i always felt like was struggled with the positional authority of the child advocate so i I always thought i'm just Irwin, right yeah you probably didn't like being a boss right no i didn't i didn't didn't feel comfortable with positional authority neither did i so i like to think of myself as just Irwin. i'm Irwin. the phone yeah i'm avram yeah i forgot this is who i am this is how i do things yeah so 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 Irwin, the phone rings tell me about a call uh One I took, yes. Ones I took, I was thinking one of the more mundane ones, but I think it was important. Was <laughs> so there's this girl in a, a group home, and uh, there's a girl in a group home, and she's in Cobacock. I don't actually remember the name of it. It's a little town. Oh, I've I, been in Cobacock. I, I, I rented a cottage up there. There are group homes mm-hmm. there. Huge birds with huge wingspans. Yeah. <laughs> so she's phoning. She's this, I think she's like 14. She's in a group home and she's phoning. And actually, we at that time, we had a night service. So we would answer calls at night up till 9 o'clock. So she's phoning. It's, it's like later at night. And I'm talking to her and she's, you know, I call her back. What do you, what's up? Yeah. Um, she said, I'm phoning from such and such group home. They won't give us salad dressing. And I go, oh, okay. Remember, I'm thinking, I just worked all day. It's like, yeah, you're eight, bagged, so yeah. I'm tired. So I think I'm funny. And I go, well, I don't think you have 
um, the right to salad dressing under the convention on the rights of the child. <laughs> and she told me to fuck off. And did then, she? Yeah, she oh, did. yeah. Yeah, and I go, okay, okay. I'm just joking. I thought I was joking. Tell me what's going on, what's the problem. So she told me, okay, they're sitting around there having dinner, and the group home won't let them have salad dressing, and it's in the fridge. There's bottles in the fridge, but they won't let them have it. Yeah. Um, I'm going, okay. And I said, put, put, give me the staff. You can do that. Yeah, because the staff, yeah, advocate can say, I'd like to talk to the staff, and the staff will talk to you. And you, um, so I'd say, staff would tell me, my advocates would do it this way too, I think, what's going on? Because they, she phoned me, what's going on? Oh, they want salad dressing, but our policy now is they've been wasting the salad dressing. It's a budget thing. They just use too much, and so we we told them they're not allowed to have it. That's quite a quandary. Yeah. Put the girl back on the phone. Okay, I say. So this is what they're telling me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know, we know, but we have this plan. There's four of them in the group home. We have a thimble. I'm surprised she even knew what a thimble was. We have a thimble, and we've all agreed we will have one thimble of salad dressing. We promise. Just get us the salad dressing. I love this. Oh, my God. Put the staff on the phone. Staff says, yeah, I know. I can't. It's it's our policy. And I said, where's your manager? Oh, he's it's night. So he's, he's at home, not at home. Yeah. So, okay, can you call him? And he's going, are you kidding me? I go, no, no, just call him. So I call, the, they call, I talk to the manager, and the manager says, yeah, I explains the same thing. I go, yeah, well, they have this plan, right? Yeah. And I'm going, come on, right? Like, <laughs> I'm tired, you're tired, really? Give them the I'm fucking like, dressing, I'm, I'm actually not an advocate. I'm the child advocate. Do you really think <laughs> I want to be talking about a symbol full of salad dressing at 9 o'clock at night? Yeah. Like, they made a great... You won. They made a plan. They outsmarted you, but they made a plan. You've won. Yes. Let them have their salad dressing with the thimble. Yes. All right, all right, all right, right, right. I'll do it. I'll phone the staff. So they phone the staff. Anything else? No. And... And and I talk to the girl, and she goes, aha, and thank you, and puts the phone down. And the thing about that call, and I want to tell you, like, there's other calls, yeah. is this. In that group home, right, if that girl didn't phone us and she had somebody to talk to, then this is what happens in those group homes. The girl says, I want salad dressing. The staff says, can't, it's policy. She says, it's right in the goddamn fridge. He says, no, it's policy. She says, F you. Staff says, consequence, right, go to your room. She says, F you again, throws a plate. The plate hits the staff. The staff, policy, have to call the police. Now, that girl is charged with assault. Because the police come, that's the policy of the group home. She threw the plate, charged the girl. So kids in care are overrepresented in the youth justice system because of this. And all for things like a thimble of salad dressing. Instead of seeing the win where you bring the young people together, they figure out how to outsmart you, and you get a win and they get a win, and they feel they've done something and they don't have a record, they've just got a good experience. That's why our office was important, right? Be- 
because and young people have said that every chance your office can give us a sense of control of our own lives in systems that completely eliminate that yes. that sense of control that sense of voice it's not just talking it's human agency every time your office can give us that sense of control of being a person i i added that they don't talk about free air like being a right, being. right but every time your office can do that you're helping us leave that system whole you're helping us be the adults we want to be who we want to be and that's what i feel like is so dangerous in what's missing beyond the calls that you know i remember a call from a uh uh girl who was calling from a hospital because she had been in a restraint in a group home but they did it wrong and she was there to get her arm set because it was broken and then in talking with her you find out that was the second time in a week that she'd been in restraint so she was in a restraint while she had a cast for a broken arm and she was in another restraint incorrectly and they broke her arm again oh my god so those are like really serious things, obviously that that girl doesn't have somebody to call, but it's also about just the sense of allowing people to be human because sometimes that's even a deeper cut and a, has a deeper sequelae than than the broken bone. It sounds trite when I tell you, but the broken bone will mend. It's harder to mend the uh, people who in in group homes or in group homes, you know, kids call call it or say that staff call it that they're in storage. There's so they even refer to that we're we're in storage till we're eighteen and that's what out. they say. Mm-hmm. In and we're in storage, storage, and they've been reduced to objects, not subjects, right? You and know, that is much harder to come back from. You know, I worked in a group home, and I did before I started working at the United Jewish Appeal in the late eighties, mm-hmm. out in Scarborough. Mm-hmm. And and I was really bad at it. I, I, I was in terms of what they expected from me. Like, I yeah. don't, I'm not going to care if a kid who's been molested and abused for many years and has gone through 11 different foster or, or, or homes like that swears. I don't care. I swear like a sailor, right? And I'm not going to punish a kid for, for swearing. They wanted me to do that. I didn't. There was a kid there, Rick. And uh, Rick was highly obstreperous. Mm. He he was that one kid who was completely out of control. His mother was a uh, a sex worker, and she would consistently promise him to meet, and never show up. You know, that that stuff like breaks your heart, right? And mm-hmm. and Rick was just bouncing off the walls and he would constantly be telling me about his rights these are my rights yeah rosenzweig yeah. you jew once they found out oh. i was a jew <laughs> no. i was really screwed <laughs> but anyways he would say i have my rights you know and so what i did was i went up to york university to the law school and i printed up some cases of young people which were very interesting colorful and I brought them back to the group home and I put them on Rick's table and I said, look, you're always talking to me about your rights and you're a pretty smart kid, actually. Who knows, man? Maybe one day you can be a lawyer. You never know, you know? So I brought you some of these precedent-setting cases for you to read. And, of course, he goes, oh, fuck you, Rosenzweig, right? But he read them. He read them. 
And uh, I mean, eventually he took off. And I always wondered what happened to that kid, you know, because the cops show up at the door. Right, Erwin? Uh-huh. And these are ominous figures. If you're 14 or 15, let alone I was probably 29 or 30, these are carrying Glocks in their side, these big guns, and they handcuff these kids. And and, and it just breaks your heart because they're kids, right? They're just kids. So you have to deal with a lot of stuff. But that that story you told is kind of cool because it is cool. Yeah, I thought thought it was cool. It is. (laughs) You don't know. If you know when you put the the material on, you don't know right. that could have been the time, right? Twenty years, right? And he's he could be somewhere in Millhaven or at the Ontario Bar Association. Y- yes, yes. Because he's a lawyer now. Yes. Telling a story about that time, this crazy Jew <laughs> Rosenwag. I remember his name. That Rosenwag <laughs> yeah. put that those cases on my desk. Yeah. And I read them. And Thank what you. if he hadn't done that? Right. And he probably doesn't even know I'm talking about him now. So, so, so and you he, have to believe that you did your half, and yeah. that is possible. Okay, well, thank you for that. No one's ever said that to me. You have to. Thank you for saying that. And you know it's true. So, so, so in this light, I, yes, I do. In this light, you once spoke to my staff at Via Hafta, and I asked you a question about these moments that we're speaking of. Yeah. I asked you a question. I said, Erwin, how is it that a young girl who has to step over her inebriated mother every single morning and upon her return from school at the end of the day, she has to prepare her own meals. She's abused. How is it that that girl or that boy actually rises to the call of life and ultimately finds a, a, a certain semblance of success? What could have happened in their life that was a, a train wreck that allowed them to move forward and become something. Tell me the story that you told us at that time. It was a beautiful story. Yeah, about the difference one person can make? Yes, mm. yes. Yeah, so so I, uh, I often think about, as yeah, I'm not a great at book learning and stuff, so I think about stories and, and reflect on on myself and... So I remember, um, I remember when I was in grade seven, and I at that time I was a hockey fanatic, a Montreal Canadian fan. I'm not any longer. Habs suck, by the way. Well, they were great, <laughs> and then you know why not? They traded PK Subban, and I thought that was a racist thing. Did you? You did. I then. did. Yes, because he didn't fit the character of the dressing room. They were saying. Like, he Do you think Nashville exuberant. trading him is is racist? I don't know. Yeah, I was a Montreal fan, and I, yeah, I yeah. and I felt oh, and so I'm a Montreal Jew, and a Montreal fan, and I have something to say about Quebec and racism, and so I probably think that's why I thought that, and I thought I'm until until PK wins the Stanley Cup, I'm not going back to Canadians, or until the Montreal GM Bergman. He, well, I'm with you on that. If he that. goes, fine, <laughs> I might consider going back. Good but man. No, nope. So I used to love hockey, yeah. and I would write stories, uh, fictional stories about hockey, and I would think I was really, really smart. I'd like, I remember, I don't know if it's popped in my head, but Bert Olmsted was the name of a player, so I'd call him Bert Almond, and I thought, oh, isn't that funny? <laughs> and I'd make funny names out of all the hockey players, and I'd write these ridiculously silly stories. And, and then I would turn them in 
to my grade seven teacher, Mr. Klecki, and he he wasn't a hockey fan, but I can kind of pretended he was. And he one time took one of my stories and said he didn't read it to the class. He just waved it to the class yes. and said, "I want you to know this Mr. Irwin Elman is going to be a author one day he's an amazing writer and you should all know this or some version of that that's how i remember it yeah beautiful and i was embarrassed but boy did i love that teacher right yeah and i it wasn't till later that i realized like i'm telling you now i'm not a good writer anybody can tell you i'm i'm not a good writer and those were not good stories i don't know where i didn't keep any so i can't prove it but they weren't um but I realized Mr. Klecki, he was doing this because he knew what I liked and what I was passionate about at the time, and he was motivating me, yes. and he did, and he was building me up. So one day I went back, because I, when I told the story, I went back to the grade 7 to try and find him. I think I was in high school, grade, grade 13, and I went back to see him, and it was like... He knew who I was, but it was kind of like, what are, you, what are you doing here? Yeah. And I never knew. I didn't know then. I knew I liked him, but I didn't know why I liked him. And I was thinking about this one-person theory, right? And the one, and that's what young people told me. Because every study you'll ever read about young people at the margins, whatever you want to call, any system of care, homeless, anything, if people are successful they can point to one person who made a difference oh really yeah every yeah. single study young people and anybody will tell you it's it yeah and, and was he or one person yeah he was he and so when i thought back i thought of mr klecky and i thought wow he made a difference and then when i thought about it and i was that's why i told you about your story i thought mr klecky he doesn't this is like decades later one i am convinced if he is alive and i couldn't find him on facebook but if he's alive he has no clue who erwin elman is he might have read it in a newspaper always but he won't remember i was a student in grade seven and he certainly won't remember i used to write hockey stories and he certainly won't remember the moment he took to out me in the class as what this great writer Oh, you're convinced he won't remember any no, of that? No, I know he won't. And what he won't know is that here's Erwin Elman and sitting in your agency or in a conference telling the story about Mr. Klecky. And then I asked people and I asked you and, and say, who was your one person? Yeah. And lots of people, it's interesting how many people, when I ask them, they put up their hand, they think of a teacher and... Could be because I said the Mr. Klecky story. I've contaminated it. Yeah, yeah. But it's not always. Even people have strong, supportive families. They don't run to thinking, it's my mom. It's my dad. There's somebody. They're thinking of a moment. Somebody did something that made a difference. And what I've said to them is that it's proof. Like, we're so big on evidence-based practice right now. <laughs> and that in itself, the one-person theory... You are every human that has made it to your staff group because they've got an education, they've got a job, they're in university. If they've made it to that level, they can find the one person. So they are living proof and evidence that one person theory is correct. 
That's fascinating. Which means that when you do something and you do your half, you need to understand that you're living, you know that this could make a difference. Could, not will, but could make a difference. The other thing I want, is there's a negative way of thinking. I like the positive because yes. a young person, when I said that story, said, yeah, Erwin, there was a day, I remember her, I, she, I, she, I, yeah, she was a card and great, great young woman, not so young anymore, but she listens to this. She's amazing. Her name's uh, Candida, and she told me once, yeah, you once told me I was not smart enough to go to university. <laughs> Like, oh, I did not. Asshole. I, I know. I said, I never said that. <laughs> yes, you did. And you know what I said to her? She was struggling between, she wanted to go into journalism. Yes. Radio, television, arts at Ryerson. At Ryerson, yeah. Or journalism at Carleton. In Ottawa. And I think I said something like, you know, radio, television, arts, it's more hands-on. It's more practical. I think you'd like that better. But she didn't hear it that way. No, she heard that. I told her she was not smart enough to go to university. But what she said was, when she told me that, was it's proof that the one-person theory can work in reverse. So it means oh, yes. you always have to be careful about what you say and do. Because how you do things is important to what you do. Because what you say can have a, the other effect. A hundred percent. You're absolutely right. One of the things that I do in life, you know we all have our own little... Um, ways about us and we all our character traits one of the things that I really enjoy doing more often than not and do as often as I can when I go shopping across the street at Metro I've, I've developed a relationship with the cashiers and the guys who stock the shelves uh-huh. because I figure these guys work really hard and, 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 and it's not a job that I think I would do very well at. I would screw up the beans are over here and, you know, the ketchup is over here. The I would confuse everything in the, and in the end they would probably all fall off the shelves. So I have respect for these guys and they always have something to say, which is interesting. So I always say hello to them. And very often what I'll do is I'll point something out to them about themselves more often than not, which they hadn't known before. I remember the other day I was, I was going through cash. There was this lovely guy there lovely guy and he was probably about 18 years old or 19 and uh, I started talking to him about my son and fatherhood I, you know like I don't have any qualms about asking people for advice and I said I'm pretty sure I did this wrong you know I just didn't feel confident about it he says you might be surprised he says you may be surprised how your son took that and he sort of gave me an explanation of how I can turn that around and I saw another person working there had a lovely smile you know when you see people full of teeth and they're white and they just look so vivacious, you know? And I said, my gosh, you have a lovely smile, you know? And and more often than not, Erwin, and sometimes people say, Alfred, you better watch out because you're going to get a punch in the head. But more <laughs> often than not, I'm telling you, people take this stuff in and they appreciate it. And all of a sudden, when someone's talking to them about who they are, they're actually seeing them. You know, I see people are so efficient in different environments, which we would many people would stand in judgment of. And I'll go out of my way. Like you ever you ever walk by a guy who's cleaning a window and he's really diligent about it. Yeah. Like I'll make an effort and I'll say to him, the window's so clear, man, I'm afraid I'm going to walk right through it. And they appreciate it. Mm -hmm. They appreciate it. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Not enough of that goes on. Right. Would you do that, for instance, when you went up to a reserve? And you spent mm-hmm. time with kids up there. Would you look for their gifts? Would you see what they were particularly passionate or good about and point it out? Is that your way as well? Well, he, uh, that's a whole other 
Yeah. So, you know, my th- I've been to many of the First Nations communities and yeah. reserves, uh, especially the fly-in ones, the remote ones. And uh, I remember, so I think you have, like knowing your audience, remember I said that earlier? It's a earlier, big deal, yeah. You, ha- you can't, uh, First Nations people, I think, my experience, First Nations, is so much about relationship, right? So, yeah. and trust, and you, knowing my place. So I'm, I'm a guest in the community. I'm a visitor. I'm a stranger in the community. I'm an old, middle-aged old white guy in the community. Um, so it's not a moment I find to uh, talk that way. It, like it's so. I walk. I walked on, um, in a way, walked on eggshells, different. So I, I was careful and allowed, wanted people to come, the young people to come to me, and, and I'd sit there. But it's interesting when that happens, if you can be, I, I feel like all, and I've been to India and Japan, as I mentioned, and Ukraine. Right. Children are children. People, well, that's trite too. People are people and children are children. Yes. It's like, if you be authentic and yourself when they come to you, right, it will work. It's even, you can be gruff but um, and grumpy, but if it's authentic, it will work. <laughs> it, you can be, so I could be myself then. But I, I wanted to say that it, I found uh, the time I went that I can remember most was when I went to Attawapiskat. And there were, I don't know if you remember, a few years ago, um, although the North suicide is is really difficult. But at that point, um, the chief from Attawapiskat had called our office and there was a, he was worried about an epidemic of suicides. And yeah. there's a lot of children talking under 18 talking about suicide but some as young as 12 11 10 Boy. and he called a he called an emergency a crisis so he phoned our office i don't he probably didn't really know who we were and said uh, you need to come and for so i remember getting a call like the receptionist at our office got the call it's the chief at Ottawapiskat, and i'm going he said he wants to talk to you and going okay like i'm not gonna say no to a chief of put course. him on and of he's course. saying you need to come and i'm going okay, I have to go, right? I'm going to come. And we got there. Uh, it, and so he, I didn't know how long I was going for. He had me stay there um, for a week. Yeah. Because the minister, federal minister was coming. He said, no, you need to stay. All my And his band council had left. It was hunting season. He said, they've gone out hunting. Mm-hmm. And so he was feeling quite alone and there was we stayed in the federal government staffs they had a public health office so that staff let me stay in the, in his unit his trailer kind of thing and i i spent that's the most amount of time i spent in a community so just walking around and it was difficult and and yeah what was difficult what was it like uh the the moment that I was stuck with right and I I 
and remember it was a community feeling in crisis right yeah i remember leaving finally i remember this feeling and it's a it's long but you'd have to believe me i felt like i had to stay i couldn't leave he kept wanting and the minister came and then it's I stayed a couple days longer, and finally, the chief was gonna leave. So then he said, basically, uh, yeah, I'm gonna leave, right? So I'm waiting at um, the landing strip for the plane to come out. So there's a, a building there, and it's it's not an airport. It's they call it an airport, but it's really a building. Yeah. And I'm waiting for the plane, and I just wanted to be there waiting. So I was like, you you have to be five minutes early, not an hour. But I'm an hour early. I told the yeah. the federal government guy just drop me off, and I felt so heavy and such a weight, like oppressive. I I, I can't explain the feeling I felt. And um, I remember thinking, this must be what the children are feeling, yeah. right? And it also is like my escape was my liberation was going to this city with all the lights and things, right? And I was going to go there and I was going to feel that weight of oppression lifted. Yeah. And and whether that's a good thing or not, the city, but I felt like the children and the young people, they always talked about the land. And part of the healing for the young people was going back, going to the land, going out to the bush. Yeah, I've heard that too. Right? And I thought that's part of what is important for them is because if they're feeling that, they just need to get away from this and where they can go to feel peace and whole is the land. Yeah. I know it's more of, more than that in terms of their teachings, but I thought that's that's why what what happened with some of the programs in Attawapiskat and not much happened and I, I you know I have my own advocacy stuff around that but I remember the um, the rangers program where the rangers would come in and take kids out to the land yeah and it was like I think for them taking the pressure off but I could feel it and I thought if I could feel it and they're living there and they're not getting out to the land well is is very difficult to live in. Erwin, er, in a speech that you gave, uh, you quoted uh, Native children mm. um, who normally kids who are in foster care or group homes, they'll say, when I was taken into care, yeah, nice. Native said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, kids will say when I went into care, and Native kids will say when I was taken into care. Is that yeah, correct? Taken away. Yeah, yeah well, taken away. What, what, What's that? What does that mean? So I, I think in terms of, it, so it's a replication of the residential school system for yeah. me. When people, when First Nations kids are talking about being taken away from their community, from their family, um, I think it's that script and understanding of what's happening to them. Um, that's just a replication of residential schools. I think it's also a statement about human agency, right? You know, I, I mentioned that in group homes, sometimes uh, the children talk about being in storage yeah. in group homes, right? And being, and then when I, they, I hear that, I think about them feeling like objects and not subjects in the world. not. And so when you're taken away, that's not a statement of human agency. 
Right. Not, not at all. Right. And so they begin that. When I came into care is how I've experienced um, non-First Nations young people who are living in communities talk about this. That's the, the lingo when I came into care. There's a bit more sense of human agency there. And it's a different script. Doesn't mean that their experiences in, in care once they get in the system are are great, but it's a way of understanding it that's different. I don't know if you heard that that time when I was also in um because you know our mandate as the advocate it was it was broad, it was children in youth justice system, young people in youth justice system connected to it in one way or another and connected child welfare, children's aid societies, connected to mental health disabled young people basically first nations young people was in our mandate yeah, to say yeah. mandate they all said the same things right in one version or another and uh, one was about we need caring supportive adults in our lives right the and part of that is the one person theory and and another part was nobody listens and i remember young people in care in the hearings said this saying um, we feel left out of our own lives. Yes. Uh, people with young people and disabilities, there was a, uh, a group of them that did a report and they talked about, we want to be seen as something more than our disability. We're not, a, we're not autism, we're a person. And I had experiences that from each group that taught me that. And in the First Nations young people, uh, we used to hold... Um, these gatherings, which we would call a forum for First Nations young people, and mm -hmm. they called it Feathers of Hope. Might be 100, 120 young people there in Thunder Bay, and they would know each other, get together, meet each other. And they were joined by elders, right? Yeah, there were elders there yep. and staff. But the idea of the process was for them to get ready to say what they wanted to say to decision makers to find their voice and at the end of the forum so they would spend time getting to know each other then working together in small groups yes break them down into groups of 10 or so and each group would get together call a home group and at the end of the forum the last day we'd invite um, decision makers chiefs deputy ministers ministers from all levels of government come and listen to these young people. Their job fascinating. was just listen to what these young people have to say. We don't know. So, um, and they called the young people, and it was all led by young, older young people, First Nations young people. So they called it listening table. Feathers a Hope listening table. And so we held this listening table. The first, it, it was the first gathering we had with all First Nations young people who had been in child welfare care. Um, so they, it's interesting, they, the listening table would last probably five or six hours because each group would come and present. There might be 10 to 20, 10 to 15 groups, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they'd present as a group, not individually, which was interesting. Um, remember the First Nations young people said, I think in, in Ontario we would present individually, not in Ontario, non-First Nations yes. people would present, each individual person would have what do we want to say? But First Nations young people said collectively, as a group, we're going to say what as we a want community. To say. Yeah, we'd figure it out. 
So they they created their presentations, and it was it was very emotional, lots of crying, and it, that was mostly on the decision makers part, because young people were being honest, um, and it was it was tense. Uh, and I remember one group coming up near the end, the way and after the the way it worked, the group would present what they had to say and. The young people leading the forum, the conference, the organizers mm -hmm. would say had a system where anybody at the listening table, the decision makers, could send a question down to the young people leading, and they would it would be in writing, and mm -hmm. they would ask the young people, the groups, the questions. That way, they didn't want to put the kids on the spot to be asked an inappropriate question. So, one question. The group presented, it was tense, and uh, I think one of the decision makers had couldn't take it anymore. It was upsetting and said, uh, basically it said, all right, it's so upsetting. Tell us what to do. Like, what can we do? Yeah. And the young people who were presenting, they got together in front of the listening table and they would huddle with their elder each group had an elder for support and they would talk amongst themselves in a huddle like what are we going to say yeah they didn't all, and then they'd pick a spokesperson to answer it they'd answer it collectively so they're huddling and we're waiting and it's like <laughs> oh my god like that's cultural too we're waiting for an answer and it's tense and we don't know what they're going to say and this young girl comes to mike she's like she was one of the youngest, probably 13, 14 years old. And after all of this, yeah. She comes up and she's this little voice says, Just listen. And I I can when I tell a story sometimes I can feel it still because she we knew that everybody at that table knew she didn't mean listen to all our recommendations. Yeah. Listen here right now. She meant just listen. Yes. And I thought, oh my gosh, like that, she's telling the truth. And that is one of the things First Nations young people say. And on reserve, the experience, they just, they want to be listened to. But it's not just them. Like Kids in Care, their version of it is we want to be part of our own lives. We feel yeah. left out of our own lives and disabled children children with disabilities are saying we want to be known more than our disability we it's a version of to me just listen and that's again where we get back to the deputy minister i tell these things that's it's not rocket science that's another thing it's not rocket science it's mm -hmm. like obvious how obvious do you ha does it have to be and then they say well what do you want us to do with that right you can't legislate love and Young people have told me to say to that, uh, you can't, but you can legislate the conditions in which love can flourish. So do something educational for us, something which is really 101, mm -hmm. but I would argue most people don't know. How do you listen? What, what, what's the right way of actually hearing, let's say, a child? Well, my wife would think that is very ironic that I'm giving any lessons on anybody about <laughs> listening because I'm a mansplainer, as you already know right like <laughs> but i think 
Um, what there's no do? but. So I know that, you know, and I often say that as when I've had discussions with my wife or an argument and I've done it, I'm sure many people have where you say, ah, she said, you weren't, you're not listening. Ah, I was listening. And you just repeat back the exact <laughs> last thing she just said yes. to prove you were listening. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Don't do that. If anybody's listening, it doesn't work. <laughs> and that, that's not helpful. Seriously. And what's it's the not w- listening. So I think the key to listening yeah, is please. curiosity. It's not, you know, people think, oh, you're so caring and stuff. No, I, I, I think it's actually being curious. Wanting to hear what the person has to say. Like, I think that's the key. And certain, I, I'm not saying that's a key in romantic relationships. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I think if you're in a helping profession and you know that, you know, young and you're working with children, for sure, that children have said over and over again, I want to be heard, then it's about being curious about what they have to say. Which you know is really hard, and and teachers who are control freaks by nature, right? That's who like me who goes into teaching. I was a teacher. Mm-hmm. This is really difficult to admit you don't know and to be curious because being curious means you don't know what they're going to say, and you want to know what they're going to say. So, so, and so wh- I think that's the key. Walk me through this. You're again, you're on a reserve, or you're meeting here in an urban environment with, let's say, native children. We're talking yeah. about native kids. And they t- say to you, I am really scared uh, about killing myself or that my sister is going to do that because suicide is all around us. How does curiosity play into that? Well, I mean, I, that it's a, uh, how can I say it? That's hard, right? Because you, I, I moved to solution then, right? So I would be talking about um why do they think that's going to happen and then go through a you know the protocols around suicide check and and a safety plan and that kind of thing but if i wanted to talk to the person about beyond that how are they doing yeah right that's curiosity right how are they doing so i do what i need to do and then talk to them about how are they doing and 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 you go from there and it's like having a conversation like you're having with me and what's the next question that comes into my head yeah, it, you know. when they they take you somewhere so it's a and that's also any counseling we were trained in was you allow the client to take you where they want to go right? right right so you just keep asking the questions where they're taking you you know, it's really. But you have to be engaged it, with them. It's very interesting because when I started to really do my due diligence on interviewing, I've been interviewing for years. Uh-huh. But when I really started to bear down and do the show, and I wanted to accomplish something great, I started. I started to study the studs, Turkles of the world, um, some of the great interviewers, including like Howard Stern, who is actually I think is brilliant, and they would list various things that were important to interviewing well. And number, always up in the top three, was curiosity. Really? Huh. Well, 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 well it makes a lot true. of sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, because do I have a whole list of prepared questions for you? I don't. Because I'm relying on my, my intuitive nature to listen closely to what you're saying. Things pop into my head when you say it. 
And then my next question is, really, how did that play out? How did that work? Talk to me more about that because I want to know. So, yeah, curiosity is huge in interviewing. It is, and it builds relationships, Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Right. People love that you want to know who they are. That's a really important thing. It's really important in any relationship. And I've tried to start, I've started to do that with my son more so because I noticed that sometimes I would be shutting him down. He would say, well, daddy, you know, I don't really like that place. Well, sure you do, son, you know. And then I, and then I had to stop that because that's what I was raised on and it doesn't work. And I would say, oh, why don't you like that place? What is it about it? And we would go through a whole discussion about it, you know. And so you, and, and a curiosity builds understanding Mm -hmm. if you're, if you're legitimately curious and it's why I felt like most of the arguments, debates, most of the service problems that would come to us can be solved by listening. Yeah. Right? It's like the salad dressing or even the broken arm. Like, why did that child get into a position where they needed to be in a restraint? You can trace it back to real listening and that child, if they feel understood, it's not that, um, say, the salad dressing. What they wanted was the big issue because yeah. they didn't feel understood and hurt. Mm-hmm. And when people, when you have an argument with my wife, it's not about repeating back the last sentence. It's me understanding. Do you know that? That solved the problem. It's hard to be there in the moment, but... The arguing isn't helpful. The understanding each other's point of view. And once we felt each other understood each other, we're not arguing anymore. Yeah, no. It's uh, easy. Half The problem's gone. And now we can figure out, okay, well, what are we going to do now? It's it's so uh, human that, that how do we do, And that's the thing. We, we need to put in, a, find a way to encourage and allow to flourish in our services. What I want to ask you before we wrap up, you know, we've been doing this for an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm going to say you're poor listeners. No, I'm sitting here thinking I could do this for another couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm i really intrigued by who you are and what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Really, you're, you're just a special person, Erwin. You really are. <laughs> really. I feel a great love for you. I really do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. When you go into a part of the world which is in crisis. Yeah. And then you come back to your yeah. Bloor and Bathurst home, let's say. Mm-hmm. And you go out to the theater that night, you know, and you have some wonderful carpaccio yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Uh, those worlds diverge so dram- dramatically. Yeah. Right. And I often ask people who came out of the Holocaust, people who came out of Kampuchea or Vietnam. I had a guy putting up my shades here in my uh, house, and he was from Vietnam, and he told me about when he was a child, and he would walk outside his doorstep one morning, and he would see bodies piled on top of one another after a bombing of, uh, of his city. And I thought, damn, I mean, Holocaust survivors aren't the only ones who suffered, right? There's a lot of people who are walking around here suffering. And I often wonder to myself is, I often wonder to myself is, how do people go from such pain and suffering and those visions that they unfortunately have in their mind to dancing at their child's wedding, you know, 
to having a baptism for their baby or for their grandchild, to going out and having a beautiful dinner. And that's really my question to you. I can only imagine what you've been exposed to. How do you get back to the other world? How do you do it? <sighs> yeah, people, I, you, you know who I, talks that way or asks me that a lot or yeah. has is people at part, you know, go to party or people are in some completely different world. They're yeah, banking yeah. or small business or something. Investment How guys. do you do that? I could never do that. Right. It's so sad. And, and I've struggled to figure out why does it not make me sad? And the only thing I can think of where I'm at is that I'm not sad because I have this sense that I can, I'm not sad because I'm an actor in the world. So I'm going to do my part. I'm not going to, like, I, if I, I, um, as I said, I was in in India and, and I met people there and there were people in front of me who, uh, suffering isn't the right word, who is, don't have what I have and what my family has. Yes. And so I'm going to play my part to do what I can. I'm, I don't expect more of myself than that. But then I also believe in them. Yeah, they're okay. And if they're not okay, they can be okay. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking when my office closed, um, people said at some point, I was angry, but at some point I needed to say um to the young people that the world had ended. The young people, part of our office, young people are going to depend on. The world hasn't ended. Your work, that especially the young people, works f- through us for 10 years. Thousands of young people, of all the First Nations young people like the ones I talked to, mm-hmm. they, the, they had created change in the province. They had influenced the way... Um, children's voice was thought about changed fundamentally everything but they influenced the world and they influenced the individuals they came in contact with nothing can undo that and i i wanted them to understand that and i wanted them to know that and feel that i believed in them that i think lots of people in the province believe in them um and I legitimately do. Like, I believe they can find a path to wherever they want to go. Um, if I know them and they call on me, I'll do my part to be part of that and yeah. journey with them. But I believe in them. And so seeing so many young people take that path, like overcome, whether it, and, and it doesn't have to be big overcome, like become a lawyer, but get themselves to a hospital in a psych unit so they can deal with um, their suicide ideation and not harm themselves. The strength that that takes. Honestly, that's I've right. I've seen it, that's right? right? Yeah. So when you see that every day, day in, day out, like how can you be depressed about that? That's that's amazing. And, and then feel like you got to journey along and be curious. Like I didn't do any heavy lifting. 
that person, those people, they're doing all the heavy lifting. I'm just journeying with them. And and uh, because I'm on your radio show, some light, their bright light of what they were doing yeah. fell on me. So lucky me. What's, what's sad about that? It's beautiful, Erwin. It's not sad. Are, they are, can do this. Are you proud of yourself, what you've accomplished? No, I, I, I don't think of it that way. What I am proud is proud of the, I'm incredibly proud of the, young people um, that and the not so young anymore people that I worked with and what they've done and what they've accomplished I'm proud of the the staff I've worked with um, and what they've done and the commitment they've had and yeah when they I'm, I'm not proud of me but when they feel and if they feel I'm not I'm no saint so if they feel there's things that I've done that have been helpful to them in those journeys. Yeah. That makes me proud. Yeah. I'm just curious. Don't you think personal pride is, is important where you put your head down on your pillow in the wee hours of the night and you go way to go Erwin. You're here for a short time, but you've done, you've accomplished something. Yeah, I haven't done that. Cause I, it's more, I, somebody told me I'm such a colonist. I'm always looking. Okay. <laughs> now what? Now what? And I'm uh, because I'm, I'm, I don't like conflict, and I'm also kind of a pessimist in that sense. So I'm always looking like, okay, what yeah. do I got to do next? I'm, nothing is ever good enough. So um, I don't think like that, but I think about keeping moving. Like, what's my next step to try and... Do, do you know what it is? There's, I don't think... Yeah, I don't know. There's not going to be a big step. I think there's uh, so many little projects, whether it's this uh, project in India with a group I met is a group of kids in the slum that I was just talking to them this morning there's um, uh, you know foundations I said can you we'll let you be a fellow and whatever that means and but you can do what you want just do something <laughs> yeah um, I'll go to Japan I, talking about my kids yes what what can I do to be there for my my kids Certainly, use social media and have fun with that. Yeah, by the be way, a you, troll you, myself. You better say husband here. You better say that. But my wife. Yeah, you say better be. I'll be a better husband. You have to say that. Okay, Kimberly, <laughs> <laughs> I said it. Because the won't make, my my wife will never make it through this whole podcast to the end unless oh, so. I tell her. Just go to the end. I mention you, and I love Kimberly very much. She is, she is uh, at work, but yeah. in life, yeah, I'm a kite. I know that. And she's the string, like, and uh, <laughs> I always needed that at work because I'd be gone. As your listeners could tell, I'm off. I'm at a million places all at the same time. My head, my synapses are going pop, pop, pop. I'm thinking about a million things, and some of them are not so great ideas. And so I need, I'm the kite. I need string to ground. Uh, are you easy to live with? <laughs> what? <laughs> 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 That's another interview you'd have to ask my wife. I think I'm fine. I'll bring your wife on to the next I'm, show. I'm I'm uh, a nutty prof- not a professor, but the absent-minded professor. Okay. I'm always thinking. Okay. I'm, okay. I'm. Do you no put your wrong socks on? Things no like attention that? to detail. I am also like that. Terrible. None. Yeah, they took the finances away from me. At I can't do the... laundry in my house. You right? cannot. No, not allowed. Well, why not? I do it wrong. 
Because <laughs> who would know there's rules to laundry? There are. There well, are. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. learn them in university. There, just, there are rules. I'm not even talking about, I know sorting colors, but there's more rules. There's rules to folding. It's like, oh, I went on Facebook a little while ago and I asked people, how, how do I transfer the clothes from the laundry, you know, the, the, the washer to, to the dryer without dro- them dropping on the floor? And I got a whole plethora of uh, different answers. It was very helpful. <laughs> I need to ask, you know. Mine's like, who cares if it drops on the floor? We'll get through it. Right? That's, that's the greatest answer, yeah. So, Erwin, I, w- I want to wrap up the show, uh, much to my chagrin. I enjoyed it greatly. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's oh, man, it was nice wonderful. To... It was. We've been trying to put this together for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, and I know in the beginning when I first tried, you had just come off your job, and I'm assuming you needed to rest. And then I saw all these Facebook posts where you're laughing and smiling in Vegas or wherever oh, you Oh, that's were. recently. You, you yeah. seem like you were having a blast. I did have fun going to Vegas. Good I for got you, work man. there and then said to my family, come, we're, we're, you're going to come with me because it's my uh, – I've been there when I was 14. My wife was, has been boycotting – She's not a left-wing guy person that much, but she'd been boycotting the United States because of Trump. I'm not going to Trump to the United States ever until Trump is gone. But Las Vegas called her. By the way, Steve Steve Pakin, I interviewed Steve Pakin here. He also was boycotting it. <laughs> really, I'm serious because of some of the things yeah, Trump had done. I told my wife, give it, like, keep up the boycott. Yeah. In 15 years, you'll bring them to their knees. <laughs> good advice so i also want to thank uh my listeners and what i think that you can take out of this show is i think it's a very inspiring show and that's really why hat radio exists it's hopefully that people can hear a schmooze between myself and my guest today it's erwin elman and take something out of that uh the back and forth between us is so important you know sitting around the bonfires doesn't happen enough having that communication having that honesty that sort of rawness about us and certainly the second thing that i would compel you to think about is uh, children whom we are surrounded by whom we raise who are part of our lives part of our villages and in the spirit of that young woman you know who spoke to decision makers um, and in honor of her, I just like to say, just listen. Just listen. They can do that. There's something to be heard. We can do this. Yeah, we can do this. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And God bless the memory of Janusz Korczak. Yeah. Who had a huge influence on so many people and still does. Yeah. Like This was a shining star, wasn't he? He was. And people, uh, and shorter story please but it's great to end on his story okay it's one of the stories that i uh, we were lucky to talk to um slomo nadel who was a writer of one of the books yes i read uh wrote a uh, book about life in in korshak's orphanage and he He was a korshak orphan he was and he he told us he said this thing about um so he said uh, once in a while in the orphanage, it wasn't every week, but sometimes, especially when it was uh, uh, a ghetto, in the ghetto in the Warsaw, once in a while, you know, I could imagine the, the kids in, in a big room with all those beds, all, you know, how orphanages yes. used to be and still are in some places. 
hundreds of, well, not hundreds, 50 like beds. Like in Romania. In yeah. 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 And so they would be sleeping and go to bed. And Korshak, um, he would go out at night and he'd go to whatever bakeries or wherever there was a place and try and find some cake or sweets. And there was very little of that in the ghetto. And uh, Somo said he he can remember this, that when they woke up in the morning, there'd be a little piece of cake on every child's yeah, bed. Wow. Wow. And he said, you know, that cake tasted like love. Uh, is that what he said? Yeah. Aye. And I thought, oh, those are the kinds of things that are going to stick with me. Yeah. And so... When I talk about kids in institutional care, when I, I hear you say to your listeners, just listen, whether it's like the the young person at the corner store minding the cash for their parents, whether it's their employers and it's their employee, whether it's 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 their own children, remember that Korshak piece of cake. And when they listen... Mm. It feels like love. Mm. We can do this. Listen, thank you for coming our way. And I'm not just saying here tonight, but I'm saying to the province of Ontario, the country, and even the world. I'm serious. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Not. I don't meet a lot of people who are like you and do what you do in the way that you do it with great sincerity, authenticity, and a really a real willingness to make dramatic changes and doing it outside of the box. I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for coming our way, uh, Erwin. Thank you. That's all. God honor, bless you, really. Honor coming from you. Yeah, no, I, I feel it with all my heart. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm telling you, there's a ton of people out there who, who love you, who have never met you. They're going to listen to this interview. And uh, God bless you. You did a special job. Really thank did. You. Yeah. Thank you to my listeners once again. Uh, you have been listening to Hat Radio. It's the show that schmoozes. Do you like that? I do like the that. Show that schmoozes. <laughs> <laughs> and God bless. Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speech writer and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca. That's info at hatradio.ca. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned. Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height